Last Thursday night, we had a men's evening here at the church. And this bottom floor and the first balcony filled with men and boys. When the invitation was extended, there were 131 men and boys who professed faith in Christ and 342 who rededicated their lives to the Lord. And I have... uh, I have wondered if that might not be the beginning of a revival in our church and community. And it's especially meaningful to me because it was a vision that God gave to our young men that they followed through, prayed about, carried out, and God blessed. And I'm so proud of y'all. Well, today we conclude our series in the Old Testament as we have come to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. The name Malachi means my messenger or the messenger of Jehovah. The truth is we do not know a lot about Malachi. The Davis Dictionary of the Bible records nothing is known of his history except what may be learned from his book. Now, there are those who have concluded that Malachi might be Ezra. However, Matthew Henry wrote, some of the Jews suggest that Malachi was the same with Ezra, but that also is groundless. Ezra was a scribe, but we never read that he was a prophet. There are others who have concluded that he might be Mordecai. But there is no reason for us to believe that. In fact, there is no reason for us to believe that he was anyone other than Malachi and that we simply don't know a lot about him. His message was the message of a prophet. He began with a rebuke and then a word of encouragement. Now, you recall that we have just concluded with Haggai and Zechariah, and they rebuked Israel because of their delay in rebuilding the temple. Now, Israel had been taken captive by the Babylonians, but the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and under Cyrus, they allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem if they so chose. About 50,000 of them went back to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed. They laid the foundation, but then after the laying of the foundation, nothing else happened for a period of about 18 years. And so when Haggai and Zechariah prophesied, then they rebuked the people for not going ahead and finished the work that the Lord had called them to do. That was the rebuke. Malachi now rebukes the people of Israel after the temple had been built. And he rebukes them for their neglect of the temple. And that's what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture today. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? 
Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture... The problem immediately is that the Jews doubted as to whether or not God really loved them. So Malachi then begins with a bold declaration of God's love. You'll see in verse number 2, I have loved you, says the Lord of hosts. Well, the Lord had expressed His love many times and in many places before. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you. Do you see what God said to the people of Israel there? He says, I love you because I've chosen to love you. I I didn't love you because you were the greatest in number. I didn't love you because you were the most powerful. I didn't love you because you were the best. He said, I love you because I have chosen to love you. Now, that love was unmerited. If you look again in verse number 2, I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob. But I've hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. So, do you see, God's love was a sovereign act of grace. He said, I have just chosen to to love you. And he said, I chose Jacob. Now, at that time, neither Jacob nor Esau had been born. And so God said, I chose Jacob. He didn't choose Jacob because Jacob had done something worthy of his love. He didn't reject Esau because Esau had done something not worthy of his love at the time they had not been born. So the point that he is making is that I have chosen to love you. Because of my sovereign decision, I have chosen to love you. So it was an unmerited love and it was also an unchanging love. In the Hebrew, the language literally says, I have loved you, and I love you still. That's what God is saying, because they doubted as to whether or not God loved them. He said, I have loved you, and I love you still. It's unmerited. It's not because you've done anything, and it is unchanging. You know, in the New Testament, when it speaks about God's love for you, God's love for people, the word is always agape which means an unconditional love. In other words, it is a love that is dependent upon the lover, not the one who is loved. So when God says, I love you, He is not saying, I love you because you deserve my love. He is not saying, I love you because you are worthy of my love. He says, I love you because of who I am, not because of who you are. Now, having said that, there were some reasons why they should doubt whether or not God loved them. First of all, their sacrifices were unacceptable. Look at verse number 7. 
You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled thee? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Now, they were told what was an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 3, the Bible says, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. Now, that was the qualification for an acceptable offering. He said, when you make your sacrifice to the Lord, it is to be a male without defect. Now, is that what they were offering to God? No. They were giving the Lord the blind that they had. They were giving the Lord the sick that they had. They were giving the Lord the lame that they had. They were not bringing their best to God. They were bringing their sick to God. So their sacrifices then were unacceptable. They had also disobeyed God's law in chapter 2, verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So they had disobeyed the Lord's law concerning divorce, and they had also stolen from the Lord. So do you see why they were, they had this hesitation? Look at chapter 3, verse number 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed thee in tithes and offerings? So then they had stolen from God by not giving the tithes and the offerings that were rightfully God's. So we understand why they were concerned that God would not love them. But God is saying, and yet I still love you. He said, I don't love you because you tithe. I I don't love you because you do the things that I say. He said, I love you because of who I am. His love was unchanging. And God called them to give the testament that his love is universal. That his love is extended to all people. Ed Wood wrote, Israel's selection was to serve as only in order that through her all men might eventually share in the knowledge of God as revealed in and through Jesus. In other words, they were selected to tell the world about God's love. That's the reason that God chose Israel. He said, I have chosen you that you might go out and tell the world that I love them, that I gave my life on the cross because I love them. Henry Morehouse preached a revival for Dwight L. Moody. It was a week long, and every night his sermon was from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Moody said that he was, he was incredibly impacted by that. But on the last night in the service, Morehouse said, For seven nights I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you. And this poor, stammering tongue of mine will not let me. If I could ascend Jacob's ladder and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, to tell you how much God loves you and has given for this poor lost world, all that Gabriel could say is, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. So he begins here with the declaration of God's love. 
saying that God loves you. It is unmerited. It is not based on what you do. It is unchanging. No matter what you do, God still loves you, and it is universal, for God so loved the world. But they doubted His love. If you look again back in our text in verse number 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? It's always been tough for us to understand. I, I don't know that we do understand it, but to accept that God loves us. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And uh, Satan was able to convince Eve that God didn't really love her, therefore he was holding out something good from her. And... Uh, some of us doubt that God loves us, do we not? I was thinking about the Lord's love, and, and uh, I have to have types or use types because I don't understand those things sometimes. And I thought, you know, I would hate to have loved Linda as long as I have and her not know that I love her. And yet some of you have been Christians for a very long time. And you are not totally convinced that God loves you. And I think that must be sad. That God loves you as He loves you, and yet you are not totally convinced that God loves you. They doubted God's love, but He gave proof to them. He said, I chose Jacob, not Esau. And in many ways, Esau was a better man than Jacob. And in verse number 4, he said, I have judged the Edomites. Warren Wearsby wrote, he judged the Edomites, Saul's, Esau's descendants, and gave Israel the best of the lands. So they doubted his love, but God declares his love for them. Now, they had also defiled his covenant. Now, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And now this commandment is for you, O priest. The covenant, then, that the Lord made, he made with the priest. And you see, the covenant begins with God calling them to be priests. And the Bible speaks about that in Hebrews, that God calls people into ministry, that He calls people into service. And so the Scripture says in Hebrews 5, 4, And no one takes the honor to himself, that of being a priest, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. God calls people. See, I believe that very strongly, and I don't think anyone should go into ministry unless they believe that God has called them to do it. God called Moses to lead the people out of bondage. God called Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, what is the reason for it? Why does God call men to preach the gospel? He says in verse number 2 of chapter 2, to give honor to my name. I was thinking about that this morning and as I was praying and anticipating being here with you to give honor to my name. Steve, that's what you were leading us to do, to give honor to his name. He's a mighty God. He's a great God. I love that song. I don't know what it is. The, you know, when we were, t all the names of God and all the attributes of God, I love that. Because that's what we ought to do, folks. It's not coming in and sitting in judgment as to whether or not we like the service, but to give honor to His name. And that's what He says there. Why have I called you to give honor to my name? But they had perverted the call. In chapter 2, verse number 2, He says, Then I'll send the curse upon you. I'll curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring... 
and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. The priest had perverted the call of God. David Miller wrote, you will search in vain to find a more scathing castigation of spiritual leaders. What had they done to cause God to to respond as he did? What had they done? Well, first of all, they dishonored God. In in verse number 10 of chapter 1, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an altar and offer from you, a sacrifice from you. Warren Wiersbe wrote, verse 10, ought to read, listen to this, Who is there spiritual enough? To shut the temple doors and put an end to this hypocrisy. God would rather see the temple closed than to have the people and the priest playing at religion. Isn't that strong? God said, is there no one there spiritual enough to shut the doors and stop this nonsense? I wonder when the Lord looks at our services and our churches today, and, and I think of those who, who do not believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, those who do not believe the Bible is the Word of God and so forth. If God is saying, is there no one there spiritual enough? Is there no one there with enough integrity to shut the doors of the thing? Because it's blasphemous to God. They dishonored God. In chapter 2, verse number 2, he said that he, would bl- that he would curse their blessings. Matthew Poole's commentary said it is a comprehensive threat, many miseries in one word. It is a blast on their good hoped for, and it is poison in the good possessed. And when it is, as here, sin of God, it will surely do both. It will be a blast on hopes. It will be a poison in what is possessed and should be enjoyed. God says, because of your disobedience, he said, then I am going to curse your blessings. In chapter 2, verse number 9, they had shamed themselves. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you're keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. I've said to you before, that is one of the things that I pray about. Because uh, I and the staff here, we're all vulnerable. Say, Lord, please don't, don't let us bring shame on you. Don't let us bring shame on ourselves. Don't let us bring shame on your work, on your church. But they had brought shame on themselves, and they were destructive, it says in chapter 2, verse number 8. He said, you've caused many to stumble. Folks, we have to be careful with that, that we don't do things and live in such a way that people look at us and we cause them to stumble. Because we have a responsibility not to be stumbling blocks to those who are looking to us. And so the Lord says, therefore, I'm going to judge you. In chapter 2, verse number 2, he says that he would judge. And he did. This is interesting to me in chapter 3, verse number 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Find will open for you the windows of heaven. Pour out for you a blessing till it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground and so forth. You know what happened to them? They had stolen from God so they would have more. 
and God cursed the crops and the people had less to give. And then the priest had nothing. Isn't it interesting that what we do has a way of coming back on us for good or for bad? I'm oftentimes reminded of the woman who poured the perfume on Jesus' feet. She gave to him. And then she took her hair and dried it. Well, the perfume came back on her. See, the same thing happens in a bad sense. They thought that they were keeping more by stealing from God, but they ended up with less. They had stolen from God. They had ignored God's law concerning divorce, and then their families were suffering as a result of it. So they had to file his covenant. But, let me quickly say, there was a devoted remnant that remained. Melvin Newland wrote, At the time of the writing of Malachi, the nation of Israel had strayed far from God. Evil abounded in the land. Unbelief prevailed. The majority of people went their own sinful ways, giving little thought to the will or the ways of God. They laughed at the prophets and showed utter contempt for God and His law. So, now there were people there who were faithless, and they are described in chapter 3, verse number 13. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against thee? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His charge, and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now, we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Do you see what they said? Now, this is the faithless there and their response to what was happening. They said, there's no profit in serving God. What profit is it that we have kept His charge? There's no profit in serving God. And they said, not only that, but it seems that the unrighteous are the ones who are blessed. We call the arrogant blessed. Do you sometimes struggle with that? I mean, you try to serve the Lord, you want to serve the Lord, and sometimes things just don't turn out. And you say, there's no profit in serving the Lord. And it seems to me that those who are unrighteous are the ones who receive the blessings. That's what they did. That was the faithless, but there was also the remnant, because God always has a remnant. Now, God always has that remnant that's faithful to Him. You remember Elijah, when Elijah thought he was the only one? He said, God, I'm the only one serving you. A little bit arrogant, but I guess that's what he thought. Lord, I'm the only one serving you. Everybody else has turned against you. And God said to Elijah, I have 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. He said, Elijah, you're not the only one. I have 7,000 faithful servants you don't know anything about. God always has his remnant. The Bible says in 2 Kings 19.30, And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. And this is the thing that should be encouraging to you, and it certainly is to me. No matter how dire circumstances become, no matter how dark the days may be, folks, God always has His remnant. And He had His remnant here. Now look at chapter 3, verse 16. 
Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God always has those people who are faithful to Him, no matter what. Frederick the Great was a ruler of Prussia. He was known to be an agnostic. And so the story goes that one night he was sitting with some of his soldiers, and he began to make jokes about Jesus and talk about Jesus and so forth. General von Zeeland, his general, was a devout Christian, and he stood. And he said, Sire... You know I have not feared death. I have fought and won 38 battles for you. I am an old man. And I shall soon have to go into the presence of one greater than you, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you are blaspheming. And the king said, General von Zeeland, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. That's a real man. God always has those people, no matter what the circumstances, no matter how difficult. God always has those people who are willing to stand up and say, you are blaspheming my Lord. God always has his remnant. But look at chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and the book of remembrance was written before him. Newland wrote, kings were making edicts, but God was listening to his people. Generals were giving orders, but God was listening to a handful of folks talking about him. Judges were speaking in courts, but God was listening to his remnant. Politicians were making speeches, but his ears were turned to his faithful followers. Did you notice the Bible says that they spoke to each other and God heard? God was eavesdropping. Do you know that God listens to your conversation? you know that? God was listening to this faithful remnant as they were talking about him. And he said, come over here. I want you to write this down. This is good. Wouldn't you like that to be said about your conversation? When you're talking to other people that God is listening, and he says, I need to put this in a book. He's talking about me or she's talking about me. And this is good. And the Bible says that they honored him, those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. Now, let me conclude quickly. The last word in the Old Testament is interesting to me. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Last word in the Old Testament is curse. But it says in the New Testament, the curse is removed. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, and there shall no longer be any curse. God removes the curse. And the last verse in the New Testament says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Last word in the Old Testament is curse. The last verse in the New Testament is His grace. God says, I have loved you. I have loved you. Not because you're deserving, but because He chose to love you. The Scripture says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, 
I put before you a blessing and a curse. Choose the blessing that you may live. I pray today, if you do not know Jesus, that you might choose Him, that you might know life. Our Father in God, we come to a time of invitation. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your grace. And I pray, Father, for those who have never received Jesus Christ, that they might today, in Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir will sing. Invitation is extended. If you're here without Christ, let me encourage you today to choose Him. Give your life to Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please, as we stand and sing, You Come, I'll greet you should do.